Um, so we are currently um, smack bang in the middle or maybe at the end of a series we've been doing called um, The Bible, History, Holy or Hoax. And so I'm going to be sharing on that today. I'm actually going to be teaching. I hope you can forgive me for that. Even when I try and preach, it always comes out as teaching anyway. So today I'm just going to teach. All right. So we're going to roll with that. Some of you, this may feel a little bit familiar. I have actually preached this message before about two or three years ago, right? So revision is good, right? Okay. But uh, we just felt, Dave and I, when we talked it through, we felt like this was something that just needed to be um, underlined and reiterated again. And so let's go on this little ride. We're talking about the Bible, history, holy or hoax. You see, this book, and now I'm regretting already choosing my fat Bible. I should have chosen a light Bible. This is going to be... All right. Over the past 3,200 or so years, this book has been the most loved and the most hated book in existence, right? And everyone from Roman emperors to communist leaders have issued decrees ordering its destruction. Millions of these things have been burned. People have risked their lives smuggling this book into countries where it's illegal. Even today, in countless countries, it is illegal to possess one of these books. Even in free countries where this book is allowed, it's still being challenged, it's still being rejected. In fact, the American Library Association recently reported that the Bible is among the most challenged books where people are writing it and complaining and asking that it be banned from public libraries. Now, on the one hand, people go, it's just a book. And on the other hand, it's so dangerous, we need to ban it. Like, it's, it's make up your mind, right? Is this just a book or is it so dangerous that it needs to be banned? The reality is that this book is the most significant book in history. The reality is that the influence of this book is unquestionable. But why? Why is this book so significant? Why is it so sought after? Why is it so despised? Why are people willing to risk their lives for this book? And why are others so desperate to destroy it? What's so special about the Bible? What makes it different from any other piece of ancient literature? See, the Bible itself tells us that it's the Word of God. And we actually need to ask the question, is that true? Because if it's not, all of us right now should get up and walk out the door. If this book isn't true, then everything we're doing is for nothing. If this book isn't true, then we are literally wasting our time. So we've actually got to answer that question for ourselves. Can we trust the Bible? And to answer that question, we need to ask four more questions. We need to ask, is it accurate? Is it true? Is it consistent? And is it supernatural? So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to dive in. You all good? Yeah. All right. Number one, is the Bible accurate? What I mean by that is before we even consider like what it says, like what it's telling us, we need to actually make sure that the, the modern Bible we have today is the same as what the Bible was, was when it was originally written. Because again, if it's different, if our Bible today is not the same as the original Bible, then what are we all doing here? We can't trust it, right? And you may have heard people say to you that the Bible's been translated and retranslated and copied and recopied so many times that today it bears no resemblance to what it originally said. I don't know if anyone's ever heard that said to you. But the opposite is actually true. And we have the manuscripts to prove it. Now, a little bit of a side note. What is a manuscript, I hear you ask? Um, the printing press was invented in 1455, and that was when we were able to then like mass-produce books. Prior to that, every time a book was reproduced, it was literally done by hand. So people who were trained in it were, would 
copy, word for word, by hand, every book. I guess they weren't books. I guess they were scrolls. I have no idea. All of that to say, these copies, these handwritten copies, are what we call manuscripts. So we have the original text that was written, and then after that, we have manuscripts that were handwritten, all the way up to 1455 when the printing press was invented. And so when it comes to ancient literature, whether it's Plato or whether it's Aristotle or whether it's the Bible, we don't actually have the original of anything, none of it. All we have are manuscripts, all we have are copies. And so the best way to make sure that any of this ancient literature is correct is to find the oldest manuscript we can find and make sure that our modern version matches the oldest manuscript we've ever found. And so the closer that the modern document agrees with the, with the copy, the oldest manuscript we can find, the more confident we can be to trust that our modern document is correct. So let's take a look. First of all, we're going to look at the Old Testament. Now, for many years, the oldest Hebrew copy of the Old Testament was a manuscript called the Masoretic Text. And it was dated around about 980 AD. And so the goal of researchers was, again, to make sure that our modern Bible matched the Masoretic Text, the oldest one we've ever had. But even though the Masoretic Text from 980 AD is over 1,000 years old, it was still copied over 1,500 years after the original Old Testament was finished. So there was a gap between our oldest document and the original of around 1,500 years. And so everyone kind of just had to cross their fingers and hope that the Masoretic text was accurate because we didn't know. We had no idea. We just had to hope. But in 1947, a Bedouin shepherd boy found the first of what, is now, what are now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And between 1947 and 1956, archaeologists found over 900 scrolls in 11 caves high above the Dead Sea. The scrolls are the oldest biblical manuscripts ever discovered. They date from 300 years before Christ, right up to 68 AD, which is two years before the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And what they believe is that this community of Jewish um, believers, not Christians, but Jewish people, were, were desperate to protect not just the Bible, not just the Old Testament, but also their own historical, other historical writings. And they could see what was going to happen. They could see, because for the last 200 years, rebellion after rebellion after rebellion had been rising up against the Roman Empire by these rebellious Jews. They didn't, the Jews didn't like being under the boot of the Romans. And so there was all these rebellions always rising up. And this community, they knew that the Romans weren't going to put up with this forever. They could see what was coming. And so in 68 AD, they took all these scrolls, biblical manuscripts and other ancient Jewish writings, and they put them into these clay jars and they sealed them and they hid them in 11 caves above the Dead Sea. There could actually be more. They found a 12th cave where they believe were, did have some um, scrolls as well, but it's been looted. So we don't know how many caves, but so far, 11. And they hid them there. They hid them in 68 AD. Two years later, just as these guys predicted, the Roman Empire came in and completely destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, which has never been rebuilt, and they destroyed the nation of Israel. So from 70 AD, there was no nation of Israel. There was no temple. And so these scrolls that have been found, the Dead Sea Scrolls, contain every single Old Testament book except for Esther. 
There are 25 copies of Deuteronomy, 30 copies of the Psalms, and 19 copies of Isaiah among the scrolls. And so, of course, the big question is, all right, for all these years, we have been going, okay, our modern Bible needs to match the Masoretic text. Suddenly, we have Dead Sea Scrolls which date 1,300 years prior to the Masoretic text. What's the big question? Does the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls match? Do they match? Because if they don't, we're in trouble. If they don't, our Bible's got something wrong with it. If they don't, we've been relying on something that was incorrect. But when they checked, when they compared, they discovered that the, the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls were virtually identical. Any changes were things like spelling or styles of writing or the odd word here or there, but it was like 95% absolutely identical. No doctrinal changes, no changes at all. Now, what we need to understand is the Dead Sea Scrolls, dated between 300 BC and 68 AD, Jesus was walking the planet in that time. So the Old Testament that Jesus read is the same Old Testament we've discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we can be very confident that our Old Testament matches the Old Testament that Jesus saw as his Bible, as his scriptures. So what about the New Testament? Well, this gets even better. Remember, the goal is to make sure that our modern text matches the ancient document. And so the more manuscripts you have to cross-check, the better it is as well. So if you have lots of ancient manuscripts to double-check, you can be even more confident that your modern-day one is going to be accurate. And so what I'm going to do is I just want to give you a couple of examples of what we have. I'm going to start with a non-biblical example. I'm going to start with an ancient writer you may have heard of called Plato. All right. Now, scholars believe that Plato's tetralogies were written around about 400 BC. But the oldest manuscript or the oldest copy we have that archaeologists have found dates back to 895 AD, 1,300-year gap between when it was written and the oldest manuscript they have. And remember I talked about the more manuscripts you have, the better? They have 210 manuscripts of this particular writing. Now, that's pretty good. That's not bad at all. Let's compare it with the New Testament. Well, these manuscripts date as early as 125 AD. Now, the Bible, they believe, was written between 55 AD and 95 AD. What that means is there's a 30 to 80-year gap between the original and the oldest copy we have. And the second question we want to look at is how many manuscripts do we have? There are 25,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. So we can be very confident. And again, when they compared the manuscripts, these manuscripts that have been found from Egypt, Palestine, Syria, Turkey, Greece, and Italy, when they compared these manuscripts, they were identical. In fact, there was debate about the accuracy of only 0.5% of the New Testament. And so these manuscripts are what scholars use for our modern Bible. They're not translating your Bible from other English translations. Every time there's a new translation that comes out, they go back to the original Greek and the original Hebrew texts, and they use those to make sure that your Bible is accurate. So we can trust that the Bible we have is the same as what it originally was. And you know, there's actually something else. You know, I said before that they're only, deba- they're only debating about 0.5%. That 0.5%, let me give you two examples. 
One is in John chapter 8, verse 1 to 11, and the other one is in Mark, can't remember, and Mark 11, I think. Those two passages, if you look at them in your Bible, you will see the most amazing thing. It actually says at the top of those passages, it says, not all manuscripts have this passage. Now, what does that tell us? How does that help us? What that tells us is when scholars are unsure, they tell us. And there's only two times that they do that. Only two passages are they unsure about where they go, you know what, some of the early manuscripts have this passage and some of them don't. We're telling you. So we can be very confident that the rest of our Bible is exactly what it said originally. Now, this actually shouldn't be a surprise to us. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It tells me that God is watching over his word. He's not only watching over his word to make, it, make sure it's um, true in our lives, he's watching over his physical word to make sure it is protected from corruption, that it is accurate and reliable. It's quite an amazing thing. You know, I told you that the Dead Sea Scrolls were hidden in 68 AD. That was two years before the nation of Israel stopped existing, two years before the temple was destroyed, two years before Jerusalem was destroyed. They were found in 1947. So they were hidden for almost 2,000 years. They were found in 1947, one year before the nation of Israel was rebirthed. I don't know. That's a pretty big coincidence to be a coincidence. So that's number one. Question two, is it true? Now, let's just forget all the supernatural stuff for a second. Let's forget all the miracles. Let's just look from a historical perspective. Is the Bible mythology like ancient Greek and Roman myths or is it historically true? Is it describing real people, real events and real places? Because again, if it doesn't connect to real life history that we know actually happened, then what are we doing here? (laughs) And a lot of people will say to you that the Bible is just a book of myths, that all the archaeological discoveries that have been found actually disprove the Bible, but the opposite is actually true. I'm going to give you some examples. There's actually things that have happened in the Bible where people have gone, that didn't happen, that person never existed, and archaeology has proven the Bible correct. I'll give you a few examples. King David, until 1993, as recently as then, there was actually no archaeological evidence for the existence of King David. Outside of the Bible and outside Jewish folklore, there was nothing archaeological as evidence for King David. And so skeptics claimed that David had only ever been a mythological king. However, in 1993, a 3,000-year-old inscription was discovered by archaeologists that referred to David as the king of Israel. Here's another character, Pontius Pilate, who's in the New Testament. He's actually not mentioned or he's not found. uh, There's no evidence of him in archaeology outside of the Bible and outside of some historians that spoke of him. But he's the guy that famously sentenced Jesus to death in the Gospels. And there was no evidence. People said, well, who is this guy? How can we tell he was a Roman leader? What do we know? Like, where's your proof? Well, in 1961, archaeologists were investigating the ruins of a Roman theatre dated around the same time as Christ, and they found an inscription in Latin. And it refers to Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. So it doesn't just mention his name, it also mentions his title, which matches what the Bible says of him, that he was a leader of Judea. 
just as the Bible described him. Here's another one. For years, critics claimed that crucifixions never took place in Israel. There was proof that it had taken place elsewhere in the Roman Empire, but there was no evidence found that crucifixions had ever taken place in Israel. And so again, skeptics said, well, the Gospels are made up. There's no evidence. They never had crucifixions in Israel. Until 1968, when they discovered an ancient Jewish cemetery containing the bones of people who'd been killed in 70 AD when Rome destroyed Jerusalem. And one of the skeletons that they found still had the iron spike through the bones of his feet from when he died of crucifixion in Jerusalem. The city of Nineveh that Jonah visits in the Old Testament, for years, skeptics were like, well, we can't find any evidence of this city ever existing. There, was no, there were no ruins, there was nothing that they had ever found saying that Nineveh had existed. But the Bible said that Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. And so they were like, well, how does this work? In the mid-1800s, the ancient ruins of the city of Nineveh were discovered. And not only were the ancient ruins of the city Nineveh discovered, but in, that, in those ruins, they've also found extensive Assyrian um, libraries detailing the history of the Assyrian Empire, and it matches the Bible. One of the most respected ancient Jewish historians, Josephus, he wrote about Jesus. He wrote about how he died. He wrote about how his disciples believed he'd risen again and went about preaching. He was not a Christian. He was a Jewish historian, and yet he wrote about Jesus. Now, let me just look at it from another angle. If the New Testament wasn't true, if the disciples had just made it all up, if he had just died and never rose again, and the disciples made all of the whole thought of Jesus rising again, they made it all up. Well, you've got to go, okay, well, that's possible. Do you think they were all lying, though? Possible. Then you have a look at actually what the disciples went through, what the early church went through, the persecution and the torture and the, the death that they went through. And you start to wonder, would they have all gone through what they went through? See, sometimes people will die for something they believe in, right? But they believe it to be true. Even if later on they find out it's a lie, at the time they will go through torture or death for something because they believe it's true. Very, very seldom will someone die for something that they have made up, that they know is a lie. And yet, this is exactly what the, the, the disciples did. They went to their deaths. Matthew was killed with an axe in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged through the streets of Alexandria until he died. Luke was hung. John was tortured and exiled. James was beheaded. Philip was stoned to death. Andrew was tied to a cross and left to die. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. James, the brother of Jesus, was thrown from the roof of the temple and then stoned to death. Paul was tortured and then beheaded. Thomas was killed with a spear. Stephen was stoned to death. Crucified, Peter was crucified upside down. Were they all lying? So you don't go through that much, all of you, for a lie. Maybe one or two warped people will, but not that many. And that's just, a, that's just a drop in the ocean of the hundreds and thousands of people who were persecuted and tortured for their faith, who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. They knew it was true. That's why they went willingly to their death, because they knew they had seen Jesus risen. They knew it was true. And so the examples I've given today are just a handful of many that tell us, yes, 
The Bible is true. Nelson Gluick, who's an archaeologist and he specialises in the Middle East. In fact, he's discovered over 1,500 ancient sites in the Middle East. He's considered one of the greatest archaeologists ever. And he said this, No archaeological discovery has ever overturned a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. Let me break down what he's saying. Two things. Number one, he's saying we've never found an archaeological discovery that disproves the Bible. And number two, when we study the Bible, it often leads us to archaeological discoveries. Isn't that incredible? The Bible is historically true. And that brings us to question three. Is it consistent? And this is an accusation that's leveled at the Bible a lot. People say, oh, it's full of inconsistencies. It's inconsistent. It's inconsistent. And you may have had someone say that to you. And it's understandable when you think, you know, there's 66 books written by over 40 different authors over 1,600 different years. So, in fact, let me say this. You should expect a consistency. There should be a lot of inconsistency. Let me flesh out those stats a little bit. When we talk about the 66 books that make up the Bible, we're not talking about the same type of book. Some of them are history. Some of them are poetry. Some of them are law. Some are prophecy. Some are wisdom. Some are cries of grief and lament. These 66 books have incredible variety of style and purpose. There are over 40 different authors that God used to write the Bible. Some of them were kings, some were prisoners, some were educated, some were not. Some were shepherds, some were fishermen, some were businessmen, some were former crooks. Some were Bible scholars, some were slaves, some were doctors, some were musos, some were old, some were young. Some of them knew each other, some of them didn't. And they lived across around, across around 1,600 years in multiple different countries and cultures, from Egypt to Israel, from Babylon to the Mediterranean, through the Roman Empire, in slavery and in freedom. And they wrote in three different languages. When you consider all of that, when you really think about it, it is actually a miracle that the Bible is not riddled with inconsistencies. It should be a mishmash of random writings that have no cohesion, no unity. It should make no sense at all. It should contradict itself at every turn with all the differing opinions of different classes and different cultures and different education levels and different worldviews and different people and situations over 1,600 years. Think about how much the world has changed in the last 1,600 years. Think about how you would write compared to how someone 1,600 years ago would write. Think about your worldviews. Think about the way you'd see life. And yes, there's some generalities, like love your family, some big things, like some generalities. We go, yeah, okay, I can see how we'd all say be good to your family sometimes. But even then, there'd be inconsistencies in what that looks like. So maybe you get some commonalities in, in general things. But the Bible doesn't just talk about generalities like love and friendship and family. The Bible actually wrestles with the big questions. The Bible actually wrestles with the big issues. Questions like, is there a God and what is he like? Why does humanity exist? What is the meaning of life? Why is there evil and suffering in the world? What happens after we die? See, the Bible's not afraid to wrestle with these questions that we on earth debate and discuss and disagree on all the time. And when you look at the Bible, wrestle with these questions, there is unity and harmony and a singular message throughout. In fact, when you study the Bible, you'll discover there's actually three 
levels of narrative all happening at the same time. It's quite remarkable. The first level of narrative is, is the individual stories. Okay, and These are the stories you might have heard growing up in Sunday school. Daniel in the lion's den and Noah in the ark and Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. All of those individual stories where God is acting in the plans and the purposes of people's lives, their individual lives. And so you have all these stories all the way through the Bible. But then if you zoom back out a little bit and you look a little, a little bit more zoomed out, you can see another level of narrative. And what you see is God's plan for his people. So on level one, you're seeing God's plan for individuals. Level two, you're seeing his plan for his people. In the Old Testament, that looks like Israel. In the New Testament, it looks like the church. And you can see God's plan and purposes being woven through as he builds his nation of Israel, as he builds his church, the bride of Christ. And then we zoom out one more time. And we see this third level of narrative that overarches all of it like an umbrella that drips through every single part of it. And this is God's plan and purpose for all of humanity, for all of creation. And it starts in Genesis with creation. And then we get to Genesis 3 with the fall and the power of sin. And then Jesus promises a saviour. And then we get to Matthew and a saviour is born. And then we get to Revelation and we get to all be with, with Jesus in heaven for eternity. And you see this narrative that comes all the way through the Bible. All the way through the individual stories is a promise of a Messiah. All the way through the individual stories is a promise of what God is going to do. All the way through there's a promise of forgiveness. There's a promise of salvation. And so when we look at like that, we can see the complete unity of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Three levels of narrative. God's plan for individuals, for his people, and for humanity. And this beautiful, harmonious thread of love and truth that is woven throughout the entire Bible is consistent, and it's complete, and it's harmonious, and it's communicated by every single one of our 40 authors and every single one of our 66 books in every culture and every language. It is true, and it is clear, and it is consistent. This is the miracle. The Bible is consistent. That's why we have a saviour. If the Bible wasn't consistent, what was promised in Genesis would have never come true in the Gospels. But we have a saviour because God is consistent and his word is consistent and it's faithful and we can rely on it. Which brings us to question four. Is it supernatural? And this is where things get a little bit interesting. Because if it's accurate, that's great. And if it's true, that's great. But if that's all it is, then it's just a nice true story. <laughs> but there's a supernatural edge to the Bible. There's a transforming power that's found in the Bible because it's supernatural. And if it is actually supernatural, then we're on to something because this book now contains the transforming power of the Word of God if it's supernatural. So how do we know if it is supernatural? Well, the first way we know is through prophecies. Did you know there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus? Prophecies that he'd be from the tribe of Judah. Prophecies that he'd be a descendant of David. That he'd be born in Bethlehem. That his parents would flee with him to Egypt to save his life as a small child. That he'd grow up in Nazareth. That he'd carry the sins of the world. That he'd be put to death. Even the way he'd be killed. And that he'd rise again and many more. In fact, the book of Daniel even foretells when Jesus would be put to death. Over 300 prophecies, all found in the Old Testament, and all of them fulfilled in Jesus. And you might be going, well, how do I know these? Where do I find them? 
easiest, quickest way to find some of those is to read the book of Matthew. Because all the way the book of all the way through the book of Matthew, Matthew tells you. He literally says, This was this happened and it fulfilled this prophecy. And he refers to the Old Testament. So you can find them easily because God is good like that. Some more prophecies. In Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that his descendants would be slaves for 400 years. And that after 400 years, God would rescue them from slavery and bring them back to the promised land. Now, at that point, Abraham did not even have one child, let alone descendants. But you fast forward to Exodus chapter 4, and God goes into Egypt to rescue Abraham's descendants out of slavery, where they've been for 400 years, and takes them to the promised land just as he promised. Isaiah 45 prophesies the rise of a Persian king called Cyrus. And it says that Cyrus would set the Jews free from exile. It says that Cyrus would finance the rebuilding of the temple. And it says that he would allow them to rebuild their city. Now, history tells us that this is exactly what Cyrus did, that Cyrus was the king of Persia, of the Persian Empire, and he allowed the exiles to go back home to to Jerusalem and he financed the rebuilding of the temple. The interesting thing is that this prophecy was given before the Jews were in exile, before the temple had been destroyed, before the Persian Empire was the Persian Empire. In fact, it was given 150 years before Cyrus was even born, and it mentions Cyrus by name. The book of Daniel prophesies the rise and fall of the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, and the Greek Empire, not just symbolically, but by name. 200 years before Alexander the Great ruled Greece, Daniel prophesied and he saw visions of the way that Alexander would lead Greece to become the ruling world empire and how the empire would be ruled after Alexander's death. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was prophesied and so was the rebirth of the nation of Israel, which didn't happen until 1947 and you can find it in Isaiah 66. These are only a few of the hundreds of prophecies found in the Bible that have been fulfilled. The chances of all of that being a coincidence? Zero. The only explanation is that the Bible is not a book. It's the written word of God. The God who knows the end from the beginning. (laughs) Who pours his transforming love into our lives and changes us from the inside out. Through his word, the Bible. So, Our four questions. Number one, is it accurate? Yes. Number two, is it true? Yes. Three, is it consistent? Yes. Number four, is it supernatural? Yes. Which brings us to our final question. So what? Like, so what? If it is accurate, if it is true, if it is consistent, if it is supernatural, if these things are true, then this is no longer a book I read out of obligation. This is no longer the tick the box, I'm a good Christian duty of my life. This is now the transforming word of God. No wonder governments and kings have tried and failed to destroy it because of the transforming power of this book. I've given you a lot of information today, but let's be real for a second. Each one of us are battling stuff. Each one of us are going through things in our lives, whether it's fears or insecurities or anxieties or situations that have come against us. Can I be really honest? It's not a question of can we trust the Bible? It's a statement that we can't afford not to. See, when I feel completely overwhelmed, this book is my lifeline. This book reminds my spirit of the promises that God has made and it gives me strength again. 
The truth in this book is truth that we crave like a man in the desert craves water. We need it. This is now life to my spirit and my soul and my mind and my strength. This is a supernatural book. This is a book where the God of the universe reveals His thoughts to frail humanity. Can you imagine that? The God of the universe reveals His thoughts to frail humanity. What God is this that we serve? (laughs) A book where God shows us just how much He loves us. A book that answers every identity issue because I discover who I am in Christ. A book that brings strength to battle every temptation. A book that reminds me that there is someone waiting to take my anxiety and take my fear and take my worry so that I don't have to carry it anymore. A book that frees me from my victimhood. A book that tells us of the God who loves us so much He became us to free us from the sin that binds us. A book that reminds me that even though that in myself it's true that I can never be good enough, it doesn't matter because He made me good enough. And it's a book where I can build my life on a solid foundation instead of the shifting sands and the mocking voices of culture. See, when I feed on the Word of God, it counteracts everything that comes against me. Everything in our society that it lies to me, everything inside of me that feels like a failure, His Word counteracts it all. It speaks life. It speaks truth. It speaks freedom. It speaks mercy. It speaks grace. It speaks compassion. It speaks hope. It speaks future. And when we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit goes to work inside of our hearts. When we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit goes awesome. Because you know what? The Bible tells us that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. In other words, the chosen weapon of the Holy Spirit is the Word of God. So when we get into the Word of God, the Holy Spirit goes to war on our behalf. He's just got His weapon in His hand and He fights on our behalf. And so as I dive into the Word of God and I'm ready for God to speak to me, the Holy Spirit begins to transform me from the inside out. I discover peace. I find answers. I gain perspective. I become patient. I need that. I find my identity. I find wholeness. And I begin to become more like Christ, which is what it's all about, right? I want to be more like Jesus. And in the Bible, this ancient book, the supernatural book, it says in 2 Timothy 3.16 in the message, there's nothing like the written Word of God for showing you the way to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the Word, we are put together and shaped up for the tasks God has for us. So this book, which is accurate, which is true, which is consistent, which is supernatural, this book that we can trust, through the words of this supernatural book, God puts us together. I don't know about you, but I'm broken. I need to be put back together. This is how God does it. The Word of God and the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't just put me back together. It does more than that. It doesn't just fix my brokenness. It tells me who I am. It tells me that I'm more than a, more than a conqueror. It tells me I'm an overcomer. It tells me that greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. It tells me that my God can do exceedingly abundantly above everything that I can ask or imagine. That I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. 
See, a revelation of who you are is found in this book because you discover a revelation of who He is. And that's how we discover who we are. Everything you need is found in this book. So I want to encourage you as I finish today, don't just take this message and go, yeah, it was all right, whatever. Go home and open up your word and say, Holy Spirit, please speak to me. And just read a chapter and just see what jumps out. It's as simple as that. Grab a pen and circle it or write it down. Just something will jump out. Something you'll go, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I've not seen that before. Oh, wow, that relates to me. Oh, wow. Circle it, write it down. And then pray it, Holy Spirit, that verse that spoke to me. And let God transform your heart. See where God takes you with it because it's not the Christian duty that we read. It's life to our soul. Let me pray for you this morning. Holy Spirit, we thank you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your anointing. We thank you for your goodness. And Father, we thank you. You did not leave us alone. You left us your Holy Spirit and you left us your Word. And God, I thank you that together we're unstoppable with your Holy Spirit and with your Word. And God, I pray for every single person in this room, Lord God, that as they go home and as they open your Word, I thank you that you will speak to them. I thank you that you will have verses jump out that they've never seen before, that you'll have revelation jump out that will apply to their life. Lord God, as they read your Word, they will see that it is life to their, to their bodies. It is hope for their lives, Lord God. God, that you transform us from the inside out as we read your Word, as we allow your Holy Spirit to go to work in our lives. Father God, reveal your word to us today, I pray. Thank you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, team.